Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Welcome, everyone. Good to have you guys here. Thrilled to have you. Uh, Really, as we kick off this new series, if you're joining us online, we love that you're with us. And by the way, uh, as things are starting to, you know, move towards maybe a, a new normal or whatever that would look like, some of you have been online for the last year or so. Man, as you're getting more and more comfortable, I want to encourage you, consider coming uh, and attending not just online, but attending one of our per- uh, services in person. Maybe come to our outdoor service, which we're going to continue to do for a little bit longer, uh, so you can, easy to spread out and all that. We'd love to have you try that, or, or maybe I, we're seeing more and more people each week indoor, uh, uh, and so I love seeing that. We've missed you, and uh, we know we're with you online, but we miss you, and we love, love, love to uh, see you in person, so consider that as, as circumstances and situations uh, work to you, for you to where you're feeling more and more comfortable. We'll welcome you back and we'd love to have you. Like I said, uh, people here in the room, it's neat and pretty cool to see each week somebody you know I haven't seen in so long. So, so glad to have you with us today. Uh, I have a question for you. What do you do when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? That's what we're going to be talking about a little bit today, and and, and we saw this happen 2,000 years ago, and it's relevant even today. We begin a new series entitled, The Week That Changed the World. This was the last week of Jesus' life, and this week is referred to as the Passion Week or the Holy Week. Now, where does that come from? Well, the word passio is the Latin version of the Greek word pasco, which means suffering or enduring. So you have the enduring of Christ, the suffering of Christ, the passion of Christ. Now we're diving into the series specifically to begin to prepare our hearts for Easter, uh, which is coming up here in just a few, a few weeks. And we're going to prepare our hearts. So we want to be looking at this incredible love that God had for us through Jesus, that he would choose to suffer and die so that you and I could live. These events that each of us, we're going to be checking out these next few weeks are so important. They're so important for every single one of us, for every single one of us to grab a hold of in our lives. And so I'm hoping you don't miss a single week over these next four weeks. Now, the Passion Week begins with a specific event. Um, and, and in fact, somebody, there was a Starbucks card on my, I don't know whose this is. I have no idea if there's money on it. But if anybody knows the event that kicks off the Passion Week, I'll just give this to you. I literally have no idea what this is. Could be like a hundred bucks. It could be nothing. Does anybody know the event that kicks off the Passion Week? If you don't, oh, who said it first? Shoot. Brother Armand said it first. <laughs> That's a true elder right there, man. So they did, right? So I have this for Brother Armand, and then he can pass it along to somebody else. Yes, Palm Sunday, or specifically the event on Palm Sunday, was the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem five days before the crucifixion. This event is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Now, little did the people know that the joy and the celebration that took place on that day, on that Sunday, was short-lived because ultimately Jesus was not who they really wanted in a savior. Jesus didn't meet their expectations of a savior. Now, 
That Sunday begins, let's share the story today, that Sunday begins with Jesus in Bethany at the home of his friends Mary and Martha, who are sisters, and their brother Lazarus. Their home was a special place of refuge for him, but this particular time, it was a little different. Jesus had literally just raised Lazarus from the dead. Hundreds of people saw that event, and I imagine by now thousands of people have heard that what Jesus had just did in Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. Now Jesus is going to turn his heart, he's going to turn his attention towards Jerusalem. He's a man on a mission. And Jesus has his disciples, in this, in this moment, he has his disciples go to a neighboring village, Bethpage, and bring back a donkey which had never been ridden. Jesus was fulfilling a very specific prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, written 575 years earlier. It predicted that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would enter into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king. Everybody say the word king. Your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. Zechariah tells us that Jesus came as a righteous king to do what? What does it say there? To bring salvation, right? To bring salvation to his people. However, the people didn't understand the salvation that Jesus came to bring them. They, Jesus was bringing a salvation. They were hoping, they were hoping that Jesus was going to bring a certain type of salvation, but as we'll see today, it wasn't what they were planning for and what they were looking for in their Messiah. Zechariah tells us that Jesus didn't come as this conquering king to change government. That's what they hoped. They had hoped that their savior would save them from the Romans and their oppression from the Romans. That wasn't his purpose. That wasn't the salvation that Jesus was bringing. His was a kingdom, he told us over and over and over. His was a kingdom that wasn't of this world. He came as a gentle king. That's what Zechariah said. Not a conquering king. And why did he do that? Jesus came as a gentle king, very specifically, to change hearts. Not to change government, but to change heart, to save our souls from eternal death. Now, it's not hard to imagine the Roman soldier, soldiers laughing as they watch this spectacle. From their point of view, the whole thing was a joke. You got to be kidding me. If you're really a king, you don't enter into the capital city on a donkey, you enter in on a war horse surrounded by soldiers, but not on a donkey. No way. As Jesus began this three-mile journey from Bethany to Jerusalem, the crowd gathered. And as they gathered, they started waving palm branches. So the question is, why? Why did they start waving the palm branches? What did it mean? What was that all about? Well, in the Old Testament, the Jews were told to wave palm branches as part of their Feast of Tabernacles. 200 years before, during the Maccabean revolt and rebellion, when the Jews had regained control of their temple, in that moment and in that time, they celebrated by waving palm branches. 30 years after the death of Jesus, during another rebellion against Rome, the Jews even minted coins in the image, and on the coins that had the image of palm branches on one side. 
You see, palm branches represented joy. It represented celebration. But palm branches were also used very specifically to welcome kings and conquerors. I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus has been on the scene, in the public scene at least, for three years. He's been on the scene, and what has Jesus been doing for three years? Teaching about the kingdom. He's healing people. He's feeding thousands upon thousands of people. He's doing miracle after miracle after miracle. And as this continues to happen, people are thinking, oh my goodness, maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the Messiah. On top of that, this was an era, this was a season, this was a time when they were expecting a Messiah to come. There had been these, quote, Messiahs that had shown up on the scenes. And and so there was this era, this aura that, okay, a Messiah is coming. They expected in many respects. And now they've watched what Jesus did, has done, and he's unlike anybody else. And it all culminated a couple days prior when Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And when that happened, the people had concluded Jesus was indeed their king who was sent by God to liberate them from the Roman oppressors, to set them free, to save them, to bring salvation. And what better time to do it than now, which was Passover. Passover was when Josephus tells us about a million Jews had traveled from all over the world to be there during this time at Passover. And so there's Jews from all over the world for this celebration called Passover. And even though the Romans would have mocked Jesus riding on that donkey, the Jews were in a different space. They had a different understanding. They knew the story. They remember the story of Solomon and and when he became a king a thousand years earlier in 1 Kings chapter 1, it says this, it said that Solomon rode on David's mule or donkey as they led him to Gahon Spring. Zadok the priest brought some olive oil from the sacred tent and poured it on Solomon's head to show that he was now king. Say king. So he's now king. A trumpet was blown and everybody shouted, Long live what? Long live who? King Solomon. So picture this scene with me. Jesus is a descendant of David. He's a descendant of Solomon. He leaves Bethany after just raising Lazarus from the dead. And he's riding on a donkey, just like the coronation of Solomon. This is it. Our king, our savior, our Messiah has at long last arrived. Hundreds of people come running out to join him. So, so the crowd is swelling and, and, and swelling on that narrow dirt road. John tells us another crowd came from the city of, of Jerusalem. Uh, John 12, verse 12, it says, The news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. Oh, you better believe it. Remember, he just raised Lazarus from the dead. He's now on this donkey. Everybody's thinking this is it. A large crowd of Passover visitors, again, this is Passover, so you have millions of people from around the world here in Jerusalem. They took palm branches. What did palm branches represent? Joy, celebration, coronating a king. They took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. Somewhere on that far side of the Kidron Valley, these two groups came together And there was singing and laughing and shouting and dancing. It was this moment of this day, if you will, of unbridled enthusiasm as the people welcomed Jesus 
as their king, here to conquer the Romans. Meanwhile, inside the city, the chief priests and the religious leaders, they were monitoring, monitoring the situation with increasing alarm. The public display of support for Jesus was hampering their plans. You see, for them, they had made a decision back when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11 tells us. It says they began to plot Jesus' death. And they're like, oh my goodness, this is so public right now. We're not going to be able to take it. We're not going to be able to do anything. So they're watching all this, and, and they don't like what's happening. The procession makes its way towards Jerusalem. The shouts of people are growing louder by the minute. And all four gospel readers wanted to make sure you and I know exactly what they shouted. And Matthew chapter uh, 21 tells us they shouted Hosanna to the son of David. And secondly, they, had, they shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, why did they shout those words? Why those specific words? Well, let me illustrate it this way. Imagine being in Tampa Bay last month at Raymond James Stadium. Okay, imagine you were there at the Super Bowl. There on the podium, Tom Brady raises up the Lombardi Trophy for an improbable, impossible seventh time. And if you're a Tampa fan, or really if you're a, a Tom Brady fan, and if in that moment as he raises up that Lombardi Trophy, if you could shout one word, what would that one word be that you would shout out? Everybody would shout out, goat, 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 right? Everybody in the stadium, if that was being shouted, everybody in the stadium would be going. They knew what that meant. They understood what that meant. If you had a, you know, a child with you, a little boy, a little girl with you, and they're like, mom, dad, why is everybody shouting out goat, goat? His name's Brady, not goat. Why are they shouting Brady? Oh, you don't understand. He's the goat. What's the goat, dad? He's the goat. We all know what that means. What's goat mean? Greatest of all time. Everybody knows who the, who the greatest of all time is. Even Joe Montana knows, right? That, that Tom Brady, the greatest of all time in football. It's the same here with Jesus. Their shouts of Hosanna, which means God save us, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Everybody knew what it meant. You see, that was a... Uh, from Psalm chapter 118, verses 25 and 26. It was from that psalm, and that psalm everybody knew was the messianic psalm, the most important of the messianic psalms. And so by shouting those words, the people were explicitly saying, Jesus, we believe you are the promised Messiah the people in this particular crowd, in that moment, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He has come. Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. Now, this is a big deal for a couple of reasons. But one of the reasons this is a big deal, these, they're shouting this because prior to this moment, whenever Jesus had healed somebody, whenever he had done a miracle, he always told them something. Don't tell anybody. Keep this quiet. You can go show the priest, but don't keep this quiet. It wasn't his time. There had been moments and times when people tried to take Jesus even by force, the Bible says, and make them their king, but it wasn't his time. Now, in this moment, things have changed. It is his time. Time for silence is over. 
And so when the Pharisees heard the, uh, the crowds praising Jesus as a Messiah, what do you think they said? Remember, they had already decided, we're going to kill Jesus. And so now they're hearing the crowds of people saying, Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. They're shouting, they're, they're quoting the Messianic Psalm. And so the, the Pharisees say to Jesus in Luke chapter 19, they tell him, rebuke your disciples, Jesus. How dare they say this about you? And in a verse that I think might be famous or well-known to some of you, Luke chapter 19, verse 40, Jesus replied, I tell you, if these people keep silent, what's going to happen? The what? The stones will cry out in praise. This was a clear affirmation from Jesus that he's now ready for the truth to be known to everybody. Yes, I'm the Messiah. Now, there's a message for us even in that part of the story that at least I think about every time I read that, that, hey, rebuke your disciples. Stop having them sing your praises. Well, if they stop singing my praises, then the stones will cry out. And I think all the time when I read that, Jesus is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our praise. And, and I think, man, if I don't praise God, man, I don't want some stone taking my place right? I, I want to give honor and glory to God. And that's what God wants from us. And when we gather in corporate worship, singing is, you know, and worshiping God, it's not observational. It's participation. That this is my moment along with Jesus' followers to proclaim his praises. It would be tragic if in those moments, all of a sudden, you hear the chairs start crying out. I mean, I, man, that would be heartbreaking. Jesus is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of your praise. He is the king, the king of kings, the Bible tells us, and Lord of lords. So I encourage you, man, when you think about this verse, I, don't think, think, I think this for myself. I don't want some stone crying out in my place. So God, I'll worship you. I'll worship you. Then something strange happens. On the road to Jerusalem, as it came kind of around the shoulder of the Mount of Olives, and some of us have been there, and we kind of maybe even can picture this. As you come around the shoulder on the Mount of Olives, you come to this crest where all of a sudden at this crest, the entire city of Jerusalem can be seen in that moment. And I got to tell you, it is an awesome, breathtaking experience. When we go to Jerusalem and we, and we travel up to Jerusalem, uh, they actually, the tour buses actually bring you into the city in such a way to where you go to the Mount of Olives and you go to this place, this area, where you look down upon the city of Jerusalem and you see the giant temple mount, you see the temple in the modern day, the Dome of the Rock, but you see, they would see the temple it was awesome. It was breathtaking. The historian Josephus says that much of the exterior was, of the temple was coated in gold. And so you would see as you're standing there on the top of the Mount of Olives and you're looking down, you would just see the gold, you know, the sun's rays shining off that gold. It was incredible. And it's in that moment that scripture tells us, Luke chapter 19, verse 41, when Jesus came closer and he could see Jerusalem, he cried. Now that Greek word for cry, or many translations say weep, literally means to sob uncontrollably. I want you to really picture this moment right now. There's been celebration. There's been singing, dancing, shouting, people waving their palm branches. 
And then all of a sudden, as they see the city of Jerusalem, Jesus just loses it. It's not just a tear, guys. People around him can see what's going on, and they're looking at Jesus, and, and, and Peter or the others are like, come on, Jesus, there's no crying in king coronations here. What are you doing, right? What are you crying about? Jesus was crying uncontrollably. Why? Because Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that the people of this city, including this crowd that was with him right now, in a few days, they would all reject him. He wasn't the king they expected. He wasn't the king they were looking for. Their rejection of him would ultimately lead to his crucifixion in five days. But Jesus weeped for another reason. He weeped because he knew the consequences that were coming because of their rejection of him. He weeped for the people and he weeped for that whole city. Jesus saw 40 years into the future and to 70 AD when the Romans would come and the Roman army would come to Jerusalem and they would send the Jews into exile for almost 1900 years until the year 1948. And it was all overwhelming to Jesus. And then Jesus said this in Luke chapter 19. He said in verse 42, as, as he's crying uncontrollably, he says, if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. If you had only known. But now, it'll be hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. He's seeing 70 AD. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within the walls. There will not be, they will not leave one stone on another because, and here's, because Jesus saw this, the temple, the walls, everything would be destroyed. They will not leave one stone on another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. A lot of translations say, you, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You see, the Jewish people, they should have known this date. They should have known the day when their Lord would come, their Savior would come, their Messiah would come and enter into the city to bring them peace, to bring them salvation. God gave them this information back in the prophecies and specifically Daniel chapter 9. Now, I'm going to look at Daniel chapter 9 for a moment. I want to help you understand this, uh, what you read here. So let me give you a term real quick. We're going to read the term weeks. And, and there's going to be uh, seven, uh, six weeks and, and 60, uh, seven weeks and, and 62 weeks, which equals 69 total weeks. Each week represents seven years, okay? So that's just, we know his, biblically and prophecy and all that, it represents seven years. So with that in mind, let's read this together. Daniel chapter 9. It says in verse 25, it says, uh, um, you need to realize that from the command to rebuild Jerusalem, until the coming of the chosen leader or the Savior, the Christ, that will be, from that time of that command, it'll be seven weeks and also another 62 weeks, total 70, 69 weeks. Streets will be built in Jerusalem and a trench will be dug around the city for protection, but these will be difficult times. At the end of the 62 weeks, so you have the seven weeks and then you have the 62, so at the end of those weeks, 62 weeks, the chosen leader, the Christ, the Messiah, will be killed and left for nothing. A foreign ruler and his army will sweep down like a mighty flood, leaving both the city and the temple in ruins, and war and destruction will come until the end, just as God has decided. 
See, Daniel was told in this prophecy something very specific. He was told that from the time to uh, rebuild Jerusalem, when the time that decree was given, and we know historically it was given by the Persian king Artaxerxes Longimanus, and that was given to Nehemiah. And from that day, there would be seven weeks and 62 weeks, 69 total weeks, which 69 times each week is, is seven years, 69 times seven, it's 483 years. I'm not going to go any deeper on numbers, so as your eyes glaze over, that's, I'm going to leave it there, okay? So here's the point. God's people should have known for certain that their Messiah would arrive 483 years after the decree was given by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem, which was the very day that Jesus entered into the city. Uh, there's a person who wrote it about it in depth. His name was Sir Robert Anderson, and he did that in 1894 in his book, The Coming Prince. It's very interesting, and it, it lays out all the details of this. It's pretty fascinating if you ever want to check it out. But here's the point. God gave his people the exact day and time when their Messiah would enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. There were those, some, who knew that the time of the Messiah was at hand. There are some Jews who were called Herodians, and, and these Jews uh, knew the Messiah was coming, and so they thought since Herod was in charge, Herod Herodians, they thought he was the Messiah. We also know that the wise men from the east in Matthew chapter 2, they also knew the Messiah was coming. If you were with us at Christmas, we talked about them, and, and we discovered that most likely they were descendants of the, of the Magi from back in the time of Daniel, and Daniel would have shared the prophecies with them, and so that was passed along. In Luke chapter 2, we learn that Simeon also knew that the time was at hand, and God promised Simeon that you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. And then also in Luke 2, there was a prophetess named Anna who was also waiting. And when she saw Jesus, she rejoiced at the arrival of the Savior. Jesus' arrival, it was not intended to be a surprise. And yet, Jesus knew that Sunday the people would reject him as their king. In fact, at his trial they said these words, Matthew chapter 27. They said, let his blood be on us and our children. And what's so heartbreaking about that is that's exactly what ended up happening. God would see to it that their temple was destroyed and that they would be scattered across the world for 1,900 years. That took place under the leadership of the general Titus Vespasian in 70 A.D., the 10th, 12th, and 15th legions of Rome descended upon Jerusalem. And once they had finally broken through, and there were skirmishes and battles, and it took a while, but once they finally broke through, and, and I won't go into all the details, but it was horrific what happened, but they burned the temple, and as the temple was on fire, they were tearing up, all the gold began to melt into the cracks. And the soldiers, they wanted to get paid, and so they wanted that gold. And so they began to literally tear down the temple stone by stone to get all the melted gold. Not one stone was left upon another, just like Jesus predicted in Matthew chapter 24. Historians say that somewhere between 600,000 and a million Jews were brutally slaughtered during that siege. So Jesus wept uncontrollably, knowing 
that because his own people would reject him as Messiah, he knew this awful judgment was coming. You see, this Savior who knows the future, he knows what's in store for any person who is unrepentant. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, the wages of our sin, what you and I deserve, what anybody deserves, what we've earned for our sin is eternal death, eternal separation from God. And listen, that breaks the heart of Jesus. It breaks his heart knowing that somebody would turn their back and reject his offer of salvation and eternal life. And even to this day, the majority of people through history have rejected Jesus. Why? Because he's not the God or the Savior that they expect. He's not the God or the Savior that they're looking for, that they want their God to be. See, they want to put God in a certain box and say, okay, I'll believe in God and I'll follow God if he fits this. And Jesus didn't fit into their God box. And I get it. I really do. Because I think we all have circumstances and situations where God hasn't met our expectations. As I started off, what do you do? when God doesn't meet your expectations. For some, you might be single and you've been praying, God, bring me some, a marriage partner for life and that hasn't happened for you. For others, you're in a marriage but it hasn't lived up to your expectations, even though you're maybe even praying and begging God over it. For some, you've prayed and sought God and you're like, God, I am expecting you to move and to act and give me this position, give me this job, give me this promotion and it hasn't happened. Or maybe there's an illness or a tragedy that has struck in your life in an unexpected way. You expected God to come through for you. And here's the temptation for every single one of us. The temptation for us in those moments, in those circumstances, is to turn our back on God and try to do it our way. Have you found yourself in that situation? Where you say, well, God's way isn't working for me. I'll try it my own way. So we run off and we marry someone who's not a Christ follower or we, or we bail on our marriage or we grow resentful or bitter over missed opportunities or we give up uh, this confidence that we had in the past in God's love and we no longer trust him and his ways. But Jesus, hear this clearly, is the risen Savior and Lord. And as hard as it is to hear, that means that he's under no obligation to live up to our expectations. Have you ever thought about that? He's the Lord. We're not. He doesn't need to meet our expectations. And here's the, probably one of the most difficult truths for some of us to hear. If Jesus allows you or I to have moments or seasons or even a life, of difficulty, hardship, and suffering, or failure. Even if that's true for you, he's still Lord. He's still Savior. So here's the question. When, and it's not if, but when Jesus doesn't fit your expectations of what God should be, what are you going to do? What will you do when Jesus doesn't fit into your expectations of what a God, what a Savior, what a helper, what somebody who's come to says, I will, and you ask and it will be given to you? When he doesn't fit into your expectations, what are you going to do? Are you going to be like that crowd of people, the Jewish people who, who praise him one moment, but reject him in the next? 
Or will you in humble faith submit your heart, bow down before him, and trust him with your life? Jesus, I don't understand. Jesus, it doesn't make sense to me. Jesus, I'm hurting right now. Jesus, I'm in pain. But God, I trust you because you are the king of kings and you are the Lord of lords. So I ask you, are there certain parts of your life right now you are expecting Jesus to come through and it just hasn't happened the way you expected? You want him to do a certain act. You want him to do something a certain way. You thought he'd come through for you. I can tell you this. You'll begin to experience victory in your life in whatever area it is, and Jesus will triumph in your life when you accept him for who he is and not who you want him to be. That's when you begin to experience victory and joy and peace in your life, when you trust his will and you trust his way. What do you do when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, no matter where you are right now, here in this room or watching online, what do you do when he doesn't meet your expectations? I wanna invite you, God wants to invite you to in those moments, surrender to him. He is the King of Kings, he's the Lord of Lords. He made it clear, prophecy is clear. Heavenly Father, almighty God, hear our prayers right now. God, we need you. God, forgive us for those times when we turn our back on you, when you haven't met our expectations. God, would you forgive us of those times? Would you maybe say something like this right now? Just say something like this. Say, God, I am right now affirming my faith and trust in you. So God, right now I am trusting your will and I'm trusting your way, even when it doesn't make sense to me, even when you haven't lived up to an expectation I've had of you. Because God, I recognize you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And there might be some of you who are here or listening or watching, and you've never given your life to Jesus. Listen, he loves you. And he wants to forgive you of your sins and purify you and cleanse you and give you eternal life. And if that's you and you've never surrendered to him because you've had expectations of a savior, man, he's inviting you to come to him now. And if you're ready to do that, you're saying, I'm ready to accept Jesus for who he is and not who I want him to be. And I wanna receive forgiveness of my sins. If that's you, will you pray with me right now? It's not these exact words, but it's more you'd mean it in your heart. Say something like this, say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I choose to no longer live for you, for no longer live for myself, I mean. I no longer to live for my will and my way, but Jesus, I am declaring now I will choose to live for you. Here's my life, take it. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. God, hear each and every one of these prayers. We trust you for who you are. You're King of Kings, you're Lord of Lords. And we enter into this moment to remember that. In Jesus' name we pray and we love you, Lord. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. 
You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.